afternoon, Saturday. It's, uh, what, three minutes after one o'clock, so we got almost a complete hour to fill you full of knowledge when it comes to the world of disability law. If you're kind of at wit's end dealing with an insurer, or maybe you've been told you're going to get cut off or you're going to appeal a decision, maybe it's a family member or a colleague at work who's just being stressed out with all this stuff through insurance companies, there is a life preserver in the form of this one-hour program, and two of the best in the biz, James Fireman here, of course, Tamara Gopin as well, both courtesy Sanfiru Tamark and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country answering all of your questions anytime you want to come on the show as well be that fourth voice we uh, we invite you on to ask your questions in that regard that's 416-872-1010 we can get to the uh, texts as well that is 71010 throughout the course of this hour emails which we're going to get to here in just a bit after we discuss a couple things off the top is help at disabilityrights.ca and you can use that anytime you like as well there's more contact information we'll throw out throughout the hour but uh, we'll get right down to it guys before we get into some emails and some phone calls james and tomorrow i know you both have uh, some matters you'd like to discuss off the top you can choose who goes first because we got some time well I, i'm gonna start yeah i'll start off the show talking about something interesting that happened this week and really it's not that common which is why i wanted to start off the show talking about it and i had a client get reinstated so for our listeners, the, the process that we offer, obviously, are free consultations, free conversations with any one of our team members to talk about your situation uh, and what's happening with the, with your disability benefits. And this particular individual, uh, he and I had spoken some months ago, actually, because uh, rightly so, he was nearing the change in definition of his policy. He was very concerned about what the disability insurer was going to do. His own doctors were recommending that he remain off work, that he was not capable of any uh, commensurate type work and, you know, had provided sufficient medical evidence for the disability insurer to continue those benefits. And lo and behold, they didn't. Uh, they wrote him a letter saying, we're cutting you off in a couple months. And so he said, look, you know, I think we should start the process, you know, get get me retained, get the firm retained, which is what he did. And once we do, our very next step almost immediately is to write a letter to the insurance company and say, hey, we've been retained on behalf of uh, John Doe and we are putting you on notice that we're going to start a legal claim. We want to let you know that this is what's happening. Do not contact my client. Any further communications come through me in my office. And by the way, cough up your whole file. I want to see everything that's contained in that file. And we do that with some intention. And, and James and I talk about this a lot in the show, the very importance, uh, the, a lot of importance placed on that review of that claims file. You know, what were the underpinnings of the decision the insurance company made? Uh, and we take a lot of time and effort in reviewing uh, what we receive from the disability insurer. But the point being that after I sent this letter uh, to the insurance company, I get uh, an email back maybe within a week or so uh, saying, yeah, we're preparing the claims file, uh, but can you let your, your client know we're going to do a transferable skills analysis, which we also talk about on the show. And it's the analysis that the insurer in theory, should have done before they cut off my client's disability benefits. But it's a review of his background, his education, training and experience, and lining that up with ongoing restrictions and limitations he may have from a health perspective, and looking to see if there are any other occupations that he could do. Because that's the onus of the disability insurer to do. They have to identify and review, look, we think these are the other jobs you could do, and this is the level of income you're going to get for these other jobs, given your background and on that basis we think you can work and go and do these other jobs uh these 
analyses are very flawed. There's lots of, you know, landmines through them. They're great when we see them on files, frankly, because we get a lot of leverage out of them. But in this instance, they hadn't even done it. So they get my letter and they're like, ah, okay, well, now we're going to do the transferable skills analysis. And they tell me, can you make your client available for it? And James will know they don't need my client's availability to do this analysis. Mm. They just need him to complete a form, provide his background, and they send it off to some, you know, vocational specialist or somebody they have in-house to do this analysis. So, of course, that's the response. And we have a little bit of back and forth. Then I see that they've engaged uh, a... Uh, a closure specialist or something like that, like conflict specialists or something. So I get another email from someone else uh, saying, hey, okay, we've decided we're not going to do the transferable skills analysis. Instead, we're just going to reinstate his claim. But by the way, we want to do an independent medical assessment. So they've reinstated his benefits. Uh, they're giving him back a, a bunch of back pay uh, and retro payments, of course. And what ends up happening with these reinstatement scenarios is that an individual now will start up getting their uh, disability benefit month over month month. But it also means that my client is now, uh, all the benefits that he's receiving is conditional to him meeting the requirements of the disability policy. And one of those things, of course, is the option for the disability insurer to have you assessed by one of their own doctors. So there was a little bit of back and forth around that. I sort of, anyway, I did a whole bunch of things with the disability insurer. My client's very happy, of course. Um, this is a great outcome for him, but cautiously optimistic, right? Because we know just because they've reinstated and they're trying to do, you know, damage control, essentially, of their decision, which they know now is wrong. Um, but they are also going to try and probably find another opportunity to close out his claim uh, as it goes. So, look, we have ongoing involvement with our clients, even in a reinstatement scenario. And what I wanted to get across to our listeners is, look, it's rare. I got to tell you, it doesn't happen a lot. Uh, but when it does, sometimes it's actually really, really helpful uh, because it does create a lot of evidence, ongoing evidence of the decision making or the lack thereof in the underpinnings of making this decision. So if the disability insurer makes the choice of actually cutting off my client again, which could actually happen, and it has happened in the times that reinstatements have occurred in, in the few cases that I've come across, then we've got now this paper trail of things that they didn't do that they should have before they cut them off the first time. And more likely that if they're going to cut them off again, there's going to be potentially some further issues with the adjudication of the claim. So an interesting one, uh, not one that we see quite a lot, uh, but I'm, I'm curious what James thinks about this and, and what his experiences might be might be with reinstatements well interesting that you should bring that up i actually had one myself in the last week and a half um that was uh, somewhat unusual um just in the sense that it was a case where my client had never been approved and had come to us after an initial denial and we immediately issued a claim so within I'd say 10 days of the denial, there was a claim that was issued. It got assigned to outside counsel, not within the insurance company. And within a week or two of that, I got a letter from counsel saying that his client has decided to uh, put my client on claim, pay benefits owing to date, and am I okay with them contacting the client directly? Um, and so that looks like it's going to resolve quite nicely. They even offered to pay some nominal legal costs to offset any expenses to my client. And so that's a good result. I agree. It's unusual, but, you know, it probably happens, I don't know, maybe four or five times a year on my file. So it does happen. Um, and if the insurer very quickly on getting a claim or on contact from us 
has that response, I'm much more inclined to work with them. Not 100% of the time. I have to see what has happened on the file and you know, the extent to which there might still be a claim for, for damages there. But if there isn't anything that is overtly egregious where it's very clear that um, the insurer has done something that is obvious bad faith and they have come to that decision quickly, then it's something that we can work with and it's the right thing for an insurance company to do. Uh, it is something that they should be doing more often. And I find uh, as our prominence in the disability community grows, it does happen with some more frequency. So it's certainly a good trend to be sure. Uh, I did. Oh, sorry. Did you want to say something tomorrow? No, no. I think John was going to jump in. Go for it. No, no. Go on. Just keep going, guys. If you got something to, <laughs> to expand on further, James, go for it. Go for I apologize. It. You both sigh identically. <laughs> <laughs> No, in it's any a skill case, like anything else, you know. Indeed. Uh, so I did have a case I wanted to discuss, and this could bleed over into the next section, but I'll give it a start right now. So this is a case that I've been working on that I actually just mediated on Friday, and we weren't able to come to a resolution on this case, but uh, it's an interesting situation nonetheless. It's out of province. It's a gentleman who has a genetic heart issue. His family has a very significant history of coronary artery disease. Uh, this is not a, a question of lifestyle. In fact, just the opposite. I wish I had this guy's discipline. Mm -hmm. um, he is someone who eats right, takes care of his body, exercises regularly, ran marathons. Um, this is someone who really took care of himself. But he, his genetics are just a difficult issue. And at a relatively young age, he had very advanced coronary artery disease, needed a bypass where there was eight grafts that were inserted. Um, but he recovered, went back to work within a few weeks. So this isn't someone who's you know, looking to game the system at all. This is someone who wants to work. Went back to work, even started running again. But after a couple of years, the symptoms started returning and he was in a management position and his cardiologist said you just you can't do it anymore you can't keep working in a position where you are under stress and anxiety because your body just won't allow you you're going to die early you have to stop wow and he did he did i mean obviously that's what he's supposed to do it wasn't that he was physically unable to go to work he could have kept working probably could have kept working for several years and probably would have been fine now i i'm not a cardiologist i'm just guessing but nonetheless, his cardiologist says, you can't do this. You're taking years off your life. You have to stop. So he applies for disability benefits. And I'm going to talk about this after the break because there's a lot of meat in here. But I'll let you know what happened right now. Just a you know, little spoiler here. No kidding. The insurance company denied the claim. Come on. <laughs> no. Come on. Yeah. I'm going to get into some detail afterwards, but uh, why don't we uh, take us to break and we'll go from there. Absolutely. We will uh, We'll do that. Lots more on the way. Again, you have the opportunity to chime in and join the show. Ask your questions as well. 416-872-1010. The way to do that, you want to send a text along. If you want to remain physically silent, that's okay. 71010. And then emails, which we're going to get to after the break as well. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. We will continue the Disability Law Show. This is Bell Talk Radio Network. 
All right, 120 Saturday. Welcome back. Uh, thank you for hanging in through the break. John Scholes here along with James Fireman, Tamara Gopian, both courtesy Sam Firu, Tamark, and LLP. Reaching out to them outside the hour of the show. Always welcoming your calls for that uh, private lengthier chat. If you'd prefer, 1-855-821-5900. You want to ask questions of any sort, you can use your uh, tablet, your desktop, your phone, mydisabilityquestions.com. Searchable database on that one too. So your question may have been asked before and answered. And then short easy to read non-legalese memos on ltd you want to learn a bit more real simple ltdfaq.ca how about that so james pick up where you're uh, where you're leaving off pal it was a really interesting topic you had going on there so yeah i was talking about a file that i'm working on right now my mm-hmm. client had a, a very serious heart condition and had surgery a bypass surgery several years ago returned to work afterwards uh, and then eventually his doctor said, no, you just can't keep going. The stress from your job is too much. You'll die early if you keep working. You're going to take years off your life. And the insurer denied the claim. The basis for the denial initially was that he was physically able to do his job. It wasn't that his heart condition was preventing him from being able to go into his job and actually do the work. It was that continuing to do so was going to cost him years off his life. And so that was the extent of the analysis. In declining the claim, the insurance company did not have him assessed, nor did they even send the file to a doctor for a consultation. It was simply the claims manager who had the file that said, well, you're physically able to go to work, so you're not entitled to benefits. That's simply not what the law says. Not my opinion. This is the opinion of the Supreme Court of Canada from 40 years ago in a case called Paul Revere and Sukhrov, if you're curious. I bring it up not because you need to remember the case, but because it turns out this is probably the most well-known, most prominent long-term disability decision in the history of Canada. Hmm. I say that because it is cited in pretty much every LTD decision decided by a court in Canada, and it is then repeated in virtually every single memo on a mediation in every LTD case that goes on thousands and thousands of times. There is simply no way the insurer could possibly say they weren't aware of this case, which says that if you have a condition that prudence would suggest you should not continue to work because it's going to cost you years off your life, then you are disabled under the policy. In other words, it's exactly on point with this case. Very clearly, my client is in a position where it would be unreasonable for him to continue working if it's going to cost him years off his life. And the Supreme Court of Canada says that means he is disabled under the policy, and yet they denied. He, of course, appealed and got support not only uh, from his cardiologist, but this time from his treating uh, psychotherapist who said that the anxiety from his job prevents him from uh, working in any management position, working on any deadlines, doing any multitasking. So it's not that he can't work at all. It's that he's very limited in what he can you know, do something that is fairly nominal, something that isn't going to put a lot of stress and anxiety on him, maybe on a part-time basis, but nothing like what he had been doing before. And in any case, this was his initial application. This wasn't you know, in the any occupation period. This is in the own occupation period. He's got a management position. I was paying him six figures. 
and they, you know, they denied initially on the appeal. They at least had the sense to get a medical opinion. But do you think they contacted a cardiologist? No. 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 Do you think they had him assessed? No. 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 They sent his file to a GP and to a psychiatrist. And neither of them, by the way, said anything about what the cardiologist said. Neither of them disputed that going back to work would take years off his life. They both ignored that. They just said, well... I guess physically he could continue working. It didn't say anything about what the impact of that would be and kind of left it at that. And the insurer maintained the denial. So I get a call, I get hired. We bring this, we bring this claim and we get to mediation and it is a very serious claim. And I will say that the insurer, which is to say the lawyer and the adjuster that showed up took it seriously but we're limited. They just didn't have enough money and they knew it. And, you know, frankly, uh, it was clear that that's the case. So right now we're in a situation where we're in a holding pattern. We didn't resolve. And it's unusual uh, for LTD cases to get to mediation and not resolve, but it does happen sometimes. And it is really important that when you approach these situations, you do it from the perspective that, yes, you want to get a resolution. You want to settle if you can, and you should be prepared to compromise to some extent to get it done. But that only goes so far. You shouldn't be prepared to go beyond which is reasonable. You should be prepared to walk away. And that's what we've done. The reality is I don't think it's necessary that this case is going to get anywhere close to trial. I think that they really need to regroup because I don't think they understood the case until we were at mediation. Until they got my memo about a week ago, I don't think they really understood what had happened here. I don't think they'd taken a hard look at it. And I think this case will resolve for the money that it should in good time. But it is something that the insurers understand and need to understand that we are going to do a very thorough job and we're going to demand that our clients get a reasonable amount. And in those, in those rare occasions where the insurer actually doesn't come to the table, with a reasonable amount to resolve it. And it is rare. Most of the time they do come to the table with a reasonable amount. But when they don't, they have to know that we're gonna be prepared to walk away and push the case forward. And that's exactly what we've done. Mark? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's so many things that come up from this situation, super interesting. I think the one that really resonates with me is the idea of this preventative aspect of it, right? And disability insurers really, really don't like to pay claims that have a preventative component or a component where there's a wait and see, right? Like, because they know what we know, which is that the disability benefit is owing and payable for that whole period of time, whatever that time may be. Uh, Very nuanced. Most claims adjusters just don't get it. It's very obvious to me that's exactly what's happened in James's case and situation that, you know, denied right off the, you know, initial forms. I guess they did a little bit more vetting through the appeal process. Um, But at the end of the day, I think it's disappointing, frankly, sometimes uh, when the disability insurer comes to the mediation and perhaps doesn't get it, Um, because I would think... I think that's why they pay their lawyers, or at least they have in-house lawyers who should get it. Uh, but but I agree with James that uh, it's it's very unusual. It's rare. There's always uh, an opportunity to revisit resolution. And that's the other feature of this is that I like to have that conversation with my clients that it's not going to settle at any cost or at all cost. There has to be some reasoned approach as to the compensation that's being discussed. Uh, yes, it's confidential. Yes, it's privileged. Yes, it's a without prejudice process. In other words, 
Mediation allows us to take positions and perhaps compromise or talk about issues more freely uh, without the concern that a judge or a court will hear what those discussions and positions were. But at the end of the day, what you want to see is a resolution. Uh, But I say to my clients always in preparing that I go into it with a lot of optimism, but it's but at the end of the day, there's got to be some realism too, right? So if the insurer isn't seeing it the right way, if they haven't uh, valued the claim appropriately, and there is this massive disconnect, then I don't think that you know resolving it necessarily at any cost at a mediation is is the right approach. And I agree with James wholeheartedly that. And, you know, and I think the insurers know this, James, we will take on claims, we will move forward with them, we will do what's required to get appropriate, you know, uh, you know, compensation and a fair shake for our clients. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think it was a case where at the mediation, there was an, a lack of understanding. I think the lack of understanding was before we got to mediation. And I think they understand now. I didn't hear anything in the language at mediation that pushed back on the seriousness of the case, the failure to act in good faith. There was no pushback on that at all. It was simply just a matter of the insurer not having evaluated the case properly in advance and not coming to the mediation with enough money. But I think that will be rectified soon enough. I guess we'll just take it to break right now. You can give us a call toll-free 1-855-821-5900 or email at helpadisabilityrights.ca. Yeah, you bet. We're back. It is one thirty-five on Saturday. Good to have you along here on the Disability Law Show. James Fireman, Tamara Gobian, always here to answer your questions. You still have the option to call in. We've got lots of time. That's 416-872-1010. Or if you text 71010 as well, we're going to go back and forth between those and the emails. Help at disabilityrights.ca. First text of the day, guys, um, says my mom was injured at work, did physio and all the doctor meetings. The doctor says she wasn't injured at work. It was an underlying issue. So she wasn't covered by workers' comp, wasn't covered by anything. Then after her fighting it and seeing an orthopedic surgeon, that surgeon has said, no, this is a work injury. You should be covered. Now what can she do? Basically, the doctor that gets paid by the employer is favoring the side paying him. So what do you think? Interesting. Really, really interesting. So I think, of course, being that it is the disability law show, I'm kind of curious if she has access to disability benefits. And if so, she should be absolutely applying for disability benefits. So I think it's a bit of a misnomer that it's an either or scenario for people that if they are injured at work, and regardless, frankly, of where you're injured, you're still entitled to disability benefits if you've got access to it and coverage for it under your employer's plan. So I would start there. Now, the thing that she needs to understand, the mom that is, is that if she's approved for both or entitled to both, the most long-term disability policies will try and take a credit for the workers' compensation amount. And the workers' compensation amount, at least the income component, can exceed what you might get for LTD. But if she's not getting workers' compensation or there's an issue with workers' compensation, either way, I don't see a lot of downside to applying for short-term and or long-term disability benefits. So I would definitely go down that path. And the other thing that's interesting about long-term disability, short-term, long-term, regardless of disability benefits, is that it's contractual. So the cause of the disability is really typically not even something that we talk about in disability litigation. Both James and I have a history doing personal injury litigation, for example, where you might have claimants who are involved in, say, like a motor vehicle accident or a slip and fall or trip and fall. 
In those kinds of legal claims, the cause of the injuries is sometimes one of the issues you've got to work through. And so the medical opinions around what caused the disability or injury can be relevant. But in the disability context, very rarely is that something that's part of the consideration of whether or not someone is entitled to disability benefits. So great question. I think, you know, look, we are we don't do workers' compensation claims ourselves in-house at our firm. We do refer people to really good paralegals out there that do this kind of work. So if there is some resistance on the workers' comp claim, we can make a referral out for sure. Either way, you want to absolutely explore all of the different features of compensation that you can get if you're in a situation where your own medical team is saying you can't work. What do you think, James? Anything to add there? No, nothing to add. I, I completely so. agree. I apply for the LTD if it's there and there's no downside to it and push back against the WCB and WSIB decision for sure. Got a, uh, another text, guys. Again, 71010 is the way you chime in on the show and uh, get your questions answered. Simply says, I've just been diagnosed with ALS. Does this qualify as a disability? James, what do you think, pal? Well, so it's a very interesting question because you know, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, is obviously a very serious condition. Uh, it is a progressive disease, so it's going to get worse as time goes on, unfortunately. And as I understand it, there's no cure for it. So this is something that is going to certainly be disabling, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's disabling right now. It may be, it may not be. The issue for disability insurance is always a question of your ability to function in your job. And so it is not simply a, I have this diagnosis and therefore I'm entitled. Mm -hmm. It is a question of how that diagnosis impacts your ability to function. And so if you are able to, and I, I'm not familiar enough with detecting ALS and what, what can be done and when, you know, how early that might be detected, but I, assume that there are uh, there are cases where it's detected earlier and others where it's detected later. And if it's detected early enough, it may be detected at a point where you're not yet functionally limited to do what you, whatever your job is. And of course, part of that is what is your what is your job? Uh, presumably, if you have a sedentary job, your ability to continue with that uh, would be greater for a longer period of time, even with ALS. So it's much more nuanced, unfortunately, than simply just saying, I have ALS, therefore am I entitled? Uh, not yet necessarily, but almost certainly at some point down. Tamar? Yeah, it brings to mind actually other types of conditions like ALS. I mean, look, James and I are not doctors, but we certainly have come to under have a better understanding, I would say, of some of these types of health issues. And the one that I'm thinking of in particular is Parkinson's. I actually have two claimants, two clients right now who have Parkinson's. And, you know, that diagnosis in and of itself was not disabling initially on the on onset of their claims. And so it's a progressive type disease. It has symptoms that can most certainly be disabling. But from the moment that they were first diagnosed, it's not like the next day they stopped working. And in fact, a lot of the um, medical evidence that I have for those two clients 
did support ongoing work or some capacity to work as a good way to maintain some level of function, despite the fact uh, that Parkinson's can start to, you know, have impacts typically on your limbs, your hands, maybe a twitch on the face, that sort of thing. And if you do have a sedentary type job where you have to type, for example, or hold something for Parkinson's uh, patients, that can be really, really challenging. And so the reason I bring it up is because courts have recognized that progressive disabilities are also, quote unquote, valid disabilities. And we do see sometimes insurers resisting these types of claims because they take the position, hey, yet you were diagnosed two and a half years ago, you kept working for 18 months, and now you're claiming disability. What's changed? And again, it's sort of a bury your head in the sand kind of thing with these claims adjusters sometimes. Guess what, folks? What's changed is that the disease has progressed to the point where someone can't continue working. So it is a nuanced analysis, one that sometimes can have a few barriers with the disability insurer. And what I persuade you know anyone to do if they're listening to our shows is, look, just make sure that it's documented. Make sure that those symptoms and those progressions of those symptoms that are supporting the disability claim are part of the medical profile that the insurer has available to them to review. Because if they've got it and they're still refusing your claim or denying your claim or what have you, it really does support greatly having a good legal claim, a good legal basis for James and I to pursue a claim on behalf of these kinds of claimants. One thing I, I, I do want to add to this discussion, though, is especially for conditions that are progressive but aren't necessarily progressing that quickly is an issue that can come up in terms of your baseline uh, income, your baseline income level, which might be, you know, let's say it's $100,000 and then you're diagnosed with a progressive condition. And you know, it might be the case that over two or three years, you start working less and your baseline income might be decreased. In other words, the amount to which you're employer is insuring your income, the premiums that they're paying on it may go down. You really want to do your best to avoid that if at all possible and avoid redefining your role in any permanent way. Um, If there has to be adjustments to the time that you're working or the role that you're doing, it should always be done uh, as a modification of your actual job. It shouldn't be an actual change in your job. Because if there is a change in your job, if you go from a full-time worker to a part-time worker, if you go to to a smaller income level, and then you progress to the point where you can no longer work, your insurer is going to take the position that once you are disabled, it is only required that they pay benefits to the lesser amount. So based on whatever the smaller amount is that you were working at the time you got disabled, they only have to pay the applicable percentage of your income in benefits. So rather than two-thirds of, let's say, $100,000, now maybe the insurer says they only have to pay two-thirds of $50,000. You want to do your best to avoid that, do your best to permanently redefine your position in any way for as long as possible. Guys, we'll take a short break because I want to dive into some emails. In the meantime, if you want to uh, grab a phone and make a phone call as we get into a break, we invite you to come on the show and ask your questions in that way, 416-872-1010, or continue with the text, which we just got to two of them there. Thank you very much for those. That would be 71010 as well. As we continue more of the Disability Law Show, this is the Bell Talk Radio Network. 
All right, welcome back. A few minutes to go. It is 1.50 on Saturday afternoon. I want to remind you, tomorrow at 1 p.m., you'll catch the Employment Law Show right here on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Join us for that hour as well. If you have your Employment Law questions, we are set to go. Same firm, San Fever, Tumark, and LLP. They cover it all, so you're in fantastic hands. But here and now, guys, let's get back to our, uh, our email list here, courtesy of uh, Natalia this time out. says, hey, guys, love the show. My brother has been battling several health issues for the past few years, including alcoholism. His application for LTD was denied. As the insurer said, he submitted his application late. His employer later acknowledged that this was not my brother's fault, but the insurance company still refused to approve his claim. We've been advised to appeal this decision. What should we do, Tamar? Oh, don't appeal. Don't appeal. No. Natalia. Look, I mean, so so let me give some context to the advice. Okay. And it's not just this like blanket don't appeal in any circumstance, never ever, though generally that is <laughs> the inclination, but specific to why I give this advice in Natalia's brother situation is this. Not only were they denied what it sounds like to me as a technical reason, it's called late notice and proof. The disability policy has certain periods of time in which claims have to be submitted for the insurance company. And if you're not within those periods of time, some insurers more aggressively than others will say, we're denying your claim. And it sounds like they did this in Natalia's brother's situation, but also then later learned that it wasn't his fault. It was actually the employer's fault. Well, that's a reasonable explanation as to why the disability application was late. And courts have recognized that. And in situations like that, you may be granted what's called relief from forfeiture. It's a technical rule that says if there was imperfect compliance with a certain part of the disability policy, we'll forgive you for that imperfect compliance. And therefore, the disability insurer has to look at the disability claim on its merits. And it looks like Natalia's brother's situation, they were trying to avoid that right? They've now declined again, it sounds like, or regardless of the fact that they have this reasonable explanation for the tardiness of the claim. And I think that part of it could be, I mean, I'd want to see the denial letter, but it could be the feature of the fact that there's an underlying substance use and abuse issue here. So she says to us that her brother's been struggling for a long time. Alcoholism is part of his, his condition. We all know that this is a verifiable disability in and of itself, But disability policies, again, because they are technical pieces of contracts, include an exclusion that says if your disability arises from uh, substance use and abuse, including alcohol abuse, that we can decline your claim on this basis. But disability insurers know that this can be a violation of human rights and other issues. There have been some cases, not in Ontario, but um, one in particular that I'm thinking of out of Nova Scotia, that says denying on this basis alone is actually a violation of the claimant's rights and is not a proper basis to deny disability claim. But insurers continue to have this exclusion in their policies. And so they dress up denials to say other things other than what they truly want to do, which is to deny a a substance issue. Because at the end of the day, I think they're concerned that the substance issue may not be resolved. And so when I see this collection of technical issues that might be raised in a decline of benefits, I very much don't want to give the advice that people need to go and appeal this because the appeal will be, look, you can appeal within this certain period of time and you can provide us more medical information to support the appeal. But I don't think the decline here is on the medical. I, I actually don't even know if the insurance companies looked at the medical at all on the basis of what the disability claim is. I think they're looking at these technical reasons. 
And it is difficult as a claimant to convince an adjuster who doesn't know the law like we do that this is not valid basis upon which to deny disability claims. And I don't like the idea of people who have already clearly have gone down this path for a while already, not getting compensation, wasting more time, more energy, trying to convince the insurance company that they've got it wrong. I would much prefer to make it my problem. Talk to us. We can talk through these options. We can formulate a plan. And I am going to advise that a legal claim makes sense here because of all of these technical issues, because there are ways to get around these issues. And they're not true barriers to the to the valid disability claim otherwise. So look, again, I want to do a little bit more vetting. But from what Natalia has described to us, this is a good basis to challenge the disability insurer. James, what do you think? Well, I mean, my basic rule of thumb is don't appeal, of course. And uh, I don't even think we have enough time in the show to do my regular don't appeal shtick. <laughs> but the the don't appeal is the, the rule that I start with. The exceptions are, you know, if you're in a union that requires you to do an appeal before you can grieve or arbitrate, and those are the only options you have, then you have to follow the process, unfortunately. The other exception is if there is evidence that the insurance company doesn't have that would substantially change their view and understanding of the case, then it can make some sense to appeal. Don't hold your breath, but it's at least a reasonable time to consider whether or not to appeal if you can afford the you know potential delay in bringing your case if they do wind up maintaining their position. This is really none of that. Uh, the information isn't, again, like Tamar said, this isn't about the medical. This is just about the their understanding of their obligations under the policy. And appealing isn't going to change that. They're wrong. I mean, you know, even if there is uh, a late application and, and imperfect compliance, they still have to consider it. And once it gets to a higher level, they're certainly going to understand that. But a higher level won't be achieved by sending in a notice of appeal, by sending in another letter from your doctor talking about how disabled you really are. That's not going to do anything. That's just going to put you in exactly the same position, waste a few months before you actually get started and delay your opportunity to actually get what you're entitled to. So hard no, don't appeal. Let's start a claim. What will almost certainly happen is they'll take a nominal position that, okay, fine, there's relief from forfeiture, but we're still going to maintain the denial. But, you know, even if you get to that point, you're still, you're still at the, in the same position because you're not getting your benefits. So starting the claim earlier just makes all the sense. In the Let's see if we got time for Hillary. Yeah, we do got a couple of minutes, guys. We'll get through this one. It says, my son, 43, suffered from depression since his early 20s. But in the past, he's been able to manage with medication. Unfortunately, over the last few years, his condition has gotten much worse. Many days, he hasn't been able to function at all, and he had to take a medical leave from work. He applied for disability insurance, but was denied. He's seeing a psychiatrist, which is covered by OHIP. There's no way he can go back to work right now, and his psychiatrist agrees. He wants to appeal, but I've listened to your show. There you go. And told him that he shouldn't because it's a waste of time. We love you, Hillary. But he doesn't want to start a legal claim because he doesn't have the money to pay for a lawyer. Are you able to help at all? Can you at least talk to him? Hell yes. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we've already, dis- you know, Hillary, if you, were, if you are listening and you heard the response to Natasha, you know what we feel about the appeal. Don't bother. Uh, in terms of paying for a lawyer, the very good news is that we and frankly virtually every experienced disability lawyer out there 
works on a contingency fee basis, which means you don't pay money up front. You only pay if we're successful in getting money from the insurer, and then it's a percentage of what we recover. So you should never be out of pocket when you start the disability process, the disability litigation process. If you're speaking with a lawyer in disability that is asking you to pay money up front, or as the case goes along, you're probably speaking with someone who isn't experienced doing this and isn't set up to do it in a way that is going to be in your best interest. All right, that's just about it, guys. We're done for another day. Appreciate all your correspondence. If you manage to email or send a text along, that is, uh, that's great. We appreciate it. Now you move on and talk to Tamar and James outside the hour of the show. We always ask you to do that if you'd like. No problem, no commitment. 1-855-821-5900 for a simple chat. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And you can always ask any other questions at mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow, 1 p.m. for the Employment Law Show as well, right here on the Bell Talk Radio Network. 